and let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we just uh, ask that, that tonight would be all about you, as, as we do um, every Sunday, uh, every day that we worship, and every day in our lives, we just pray that this would be all about you. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask for your um, guidance as I um, teach, ask for your guidance as we all here intend to learn. Um, I pray we've come here with the intent to learn, and so... Um, would you make not the Bible come alive, the Bible is alive, but would you make us come alive to your word? Um, even in, in, in an Old Testament environment where we see that, um, that this is a, an amazing story that's being told throughout human history. And so, um, Jesus, behind, lift it up. Um, we love you, praise you, cannot wait to see you again. Amen. The book of Ruth, and, and Zach, so Zach and I came out of a, um, a study, if you were here the last couple weeks, called God and Kings. And I, and I hope one of the things that you heard at least a few times in the short study was that, that, the, that the kings were intending, that the reason that God raised up kings over his people, one of the reasons that he raised up kings, I'd argue the primary reason that he raised up kings, was to point forward to the coming king of Jesus. And so we saw that even in their, in their stumbles, in their faithfulness, in their failures, they were but pre-types of Christ. They were, they were foreshadows, and, and again, in, in all their humanness, to be sure. They weren't perfect by any means, as we clearly laid out. Um, they, they were certainly were not perfect, but what we did hit on a few times is that the kings of old were used to, the, to, the, to point to he who would come as king. And so I, I never grow tired of saying this, which is the entire Bible is about what? Let's try that one more time for the 87% of the people that didn't. Maybe you've never heard this before, but I want to tell you very faithfully, I want to tell you very confidently that the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire Bible. The entire Bible. This is... And, and again, some of you may have not heard this before, and I'm glad you're here tonight. I need you to know that this is one story, the entire Bible, 66 books, two testaments, written over 1,500 years in three languages, over four continents, with over 40 authors, with no errors, and one hero, Jesus. This is one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from creation to consummation, one story, God's story, the gospel. And so we need not be afraid of the Old Testament. We need not be afraid of, of and I heard it actually today, um, a, a pastor very clearly, divide, he said, look, we, we've like separated, and he was so on point, we've separated like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. How many, how many of us have done that? Like, well, God was so angry back then. He was so mean. He just like, he, he just like, he, he killed people at times in the Old Testament, didn't he? Priest trying to catch the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the dirt seems noble. God strikes him dead. Like, that's a mean God. Then there was like 400 years of silence where apparently God went to counseling and then sent Jesus, and then everything's like kumbaya, right? We've got Old Testament angry God, and we've got New Testament love bomb Jesus. And we've separated the two. But I'm telling you, it's not the case. The two testaments are not the case. They don't serve to describe two different gods. They serve to describe one God telling one story, but lest we forget, something very radical happened in the middle that changed everything. But before this happened, God was telling, he was pre-telling a story so that when the Messiah did come, there would be no question that this is whom he was speaking of. Now, people may still, look, people lived with Jesus and they still rejected him. But you need to know that the Bible has made it absolutely, perfectly clear who the Messiah is. All the way down through genealogies, all the way down through every king, through the institutions, through the ceremonial and civil and moral law, all the way down even to what we're going to embark on tonight, which is a love story. Even down to the books that are quite simply historically true, but quite simply stories. God was using stories, along with all the other facets of the Old Testament, to tell one story. 
That is the gospel. And so I, I hope that we do not get caught up in the story of Ruth nearly as much as we get caught up in the story of the gospel. And a lot of people see Ruth and they think Boaz, right? So all the Bible nerds like, all right, that's, and we think Boaz, kinsman, redeemer, we're going to see that. But what I want to show us in four weeks, because there's four chapters, is you don't have to wait for Boaz to see where Jesus was being pointed to in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you in every single chapter how it's about Jesus. Because some of you still are like, I get it. It's a cool thing to say, like the whole Bible is about Jesus, but I've read Numbers and I'm not sure, right? I've read Deuteronomy, no way. Leviticus, no. And we read a cool story like Ruth, and we think it's only about, well, once she gets to Boaz, then it takes a couple chapters to really point to Jesus. I'm going to show you every chapter, which I'm excited to do, how the story of Ruth was used as part of the story of the gospel, but ultimately every single chapter is used to point to Jesus. And so we undertake Ruth tonight. And by the way, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, we're going to go through every word. Unlike when Zach and I got through Romans, where like one chapter could take a year, we, we would a lot of times focus in on a good chunk or at least one of the main primary points of a chapter. We're going to go through every word of every chapter. It's four chapters in this entire book. There will be a fair amount of reading, but this is a story. This is a love story. And so who would want to watch The Notebook like skipping every third chapter, right? Guys, that's a movie. I know you're pretending to have never heard about it, right? Right? Every word part of this narrative, this story, and this book of Ruth. A little bit of background. We don't know who authored Ruth. We don't know. Some people believe it was the prophet Samuel, but given the date that they believe the book was written, which was between 1046 and 1035 BC, prophet Samuel wouldn't have been alive. So we don't have an author. We don't have a penman, I should say. But we do know who authored all books of the Bible, yes? Who is that? Bible nerd trivia. Come on. Where are my nerds at, right? Who wrote the Bible? Or who authored the Bible, I say? The Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit authored scripture. Now he used men to pen it. For sure. When your friends say, you believe God wrote the Bible. Absolutely. Wrote the, authored the Bible and then used men to pen it. And so we know that the Holy Spirit was using this book, was whoever author it was, used this book to point to the coming Christ. So we don't know the human author of Ruth, but we do know that God himself wrote this book. And it was intertwined, it was during, as we'll see right off the bat, it was during the time of Judges. Now, in our, our Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Judges. It's a harsh book. It's a tough um, book where, where Israel was not being ruled by kings. They were being ruled intermittently by, by judges. And so this was written, this narrative, this love story was being written, as it says in verse 1. It says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And so we see here that this is written, intertwined with the book that comes right before it, the time of the judges. And the purpose, I'll give you the purpose right away. The primary purpose is to point to Jesus. The primary purpose of every book is to point to Jesus. If Zach and I ever make that point secondary in our teaching, come tell us. If we ever Make Jesus in the Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Secondary of any point, come let us know. The primary purpose of this book is to point to Jesus. It also serves to demonstrate the kind of love and faithfulness that God desires for us. And I've got this as well, to show the difference between what happens when God's people do not follow in obedience to his covenant with them, as is the case with judges, and when God's people follow in faithfulness within the covenant, that's what the book of Ruth will show. And so it says, in the days that the judges ruled, and these were dark days for Israel. Now, what's the point of Israel? We've done this, and I'm going to keep doing it. So if you're tired of hearing this, let me know, and I'll, I'll try to persuade you. I'm not going to tell you to go to another church because I want you here, right? But these were dark days for God's people. And, and what God did in the Old Testament, you have to see this. God used the nation of Israel. He, he brought them through history. He protected them. He was in covenant with them. Not all of them were saved, by the way. We've seen that. 
Not every Jew. It didn't mean that everyone was just saved by birth. It doesn't mean that. But what we do see is that God moved Israel through history to do what? To point to? Some of you are getting, there's a theme to this whole book, okay? This whole Bible, right? He used Israel. He pushed them through history to point to the fact that Jesus was coming. In their civil law, that there was a king coming. In their ceremonial law, that there was a sacrifice coming. In their moral law, that God himself was coming and he would be perfect and holy and sinless and blameless. Therefore, able to fulfill all the law. So he moved Israel through history to what? To come to the cross. And here's the crazy thing. Christians act like we're not being used in the same way. We're like just sort of waiting for the end times to happen. What is God doing currently with the church? He's made two covenants in the entire existence of humanity. God's made two covenants. The first with the nation of Israel and the second with whom? Church. Whom he calls a nation now. He calls a people, a priesthood, a race, a nation. Now he's moving the church through human history to point to what? It's okay to say Jesus in this, like, in the building here. It's fine. I know you're a little scared out there. It's okay. He's moving the church through history. Why? To point to, guess who's coming back? Hey, right? Wake up, <laughs> right? He, he's moving us through history to point to the fact that Jesus is coming. Now, you come to a church, which is, is we, we call ourselves pre-tribulation. Selfishly, I'm very happy about that. I don't want to be here for the whole revelation nonsense, okay? I want to be up in heaven, popcorn, watching the whole thing. Okay, so we believe that the church gets raptured and then the Holy Spirit seals 144,000. Why does he do that in Revelation? Have you read it? So you're like, no, that book's weird, right? He seals 144,000 and he moves them through human history to do what? All right, we're going to start over. So the book of <laughs> to point to the coming Jesus. He uses three major epochs in human history to po- always pointing to Jesus. You can't miss this or you miss the whole thing. So he's using us right now. Some of you are like, no, we're just waiting for revelation. No, you're supposed to be living a life that points forward to the one who's coming. (laughs) 98% of the time, you're going to be right every time you do that. (laughs) But he's moving us through. He's moving the church through human history. Stop acting like we don't have a game plan. Right? Like that we don't actually point forward to the coming Christ. That's our call. That's our challenge. Right? Saved by grace, through faith, to point to the one who saved us through our faith, by grace. So we live a life that points forward, just as Israel was being used to point forward, but at times they became very disobedient. If you've read the Old Testament, you know this. And Judges was one of those very, very dark days for Israel. It's about a 400-year period of general anarchy and oppression and rebellion. 400 years of general anarchy, oppression, rebellion, when the Israelites were not ruled by kings, but by periodic deliverers from God, but who, who God raised up when the nation was running away. And so he brought up these judges. But there's a love story at this time that goes on. And we see that the, the, the days of the judges was characterized. I've got this in Judges 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 5. One of the most often phrases repeated about these days that this story was taking place was that it was characterized by this, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to paint a picture of this is where America is. No, because that lets the church off easy. Because you get to point your fingers, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, people are running away from it. No, no, two covenants, right? The nation of Israel and the church. We're called to be restorative agents in our, in our society, but, but let's get very practical. Let's get theologically accurate. We need to take a look at where we say, as Christians, where we are becoming characterized by doing what we do, by doing what we think is right in our eyes. I'm not going to say forget about the outside world, but, but I'm speaking to the church here. The application is in a covenant context. God's not in covenant with anyone outside of the church. So he says to us, are we, are you, I'm in a big like introspective thing right now, just in my personal life, in my, my professional life, 
For those of you that don't know, I'm not, I'm not on staff here. I have a professional life. I've got side businesses, and I'm, I'm getting very introspective. I'm trying to see who I really am, where I fit in, the type of businesses that I want to run, the type of leader that I want to be. And, and, I'm, and, I'm doing, and it's, it's pushing into my faith as it should. And I want us to be introspective too. So it's not that it talks about, oh, yeah, you know, everyone in America is doing what, what's right in their eyes. Where are you as a Christian? Where are we as a church beginning to do what we think is right in our own eyes? And so, in the days when the judges ruled, it says, now it came to pass, let's get reading. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Now Bethlehem was very rich agriculturally. So for there to be a famine was absolutely devastating. Absolutely devastating that Bethlehem, the area of Judah, was going through this famine. So bad it was. So bad as, as, as God removes his provision from a rebellious people. As God removes his hand and his protection and his provision. Famine rips through Bethlehem. So much so that people leave for their own sake. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. And Moab was a pagan land. A pagan country. A pagan area. But in tough times, this man traveled to Moab. And we get introduced to him in verse 2. It says, the name of this man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Okay? So we've got Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his two sons. We've got a family. We've got a husband, we've got wife, we got two boys. Make sense? Husband, wife, two boys. They were of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there, as we're going to see for 10 years. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. We've got a husband, a wife, two sons. Dad dies. Now we have mom and two sons. And she was left and her two sons. Verse 4, now they took wives. This is disobedience. This is disobedience. God had commanded Israel not to marry, not to intermarry with other tribes, other countries, other nations. Because he was, again, moving Israel through human history, even all the way down to the lineage. He was protecting them and moving them through history to the Messiah. This is a direct act of disobedience. It says, now they, being the two sons, took wives of the women of Moab, the name of one was Oprah. I'm just kidding. Or most of you read that as Oprah, right? You're like, I knew she's been living forever, right? Okay. <laughs> she's so wise. Uh, not really, but um, Orpa, Orpa, Orpha, um, not Oprah. Um, the name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. There she is. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malone and Chilion also died. See, they fled a devastating time, but didn't find much better times in Moab. We don't know how they died, but we know that it was incredibly tough. These were ancient times. Food, disease, war. We know that these two sons. So we had father, mother, two sons. Father died. Sons die. After marrying two women, now we have mother and two daughters-in-law. Right? We track him? That's where we are now. Three women, widowed and childless. In ancient times, devastating. Devastating to be widowed and childless. It says this. I've got this from David Guzik, pastor up in Santa Barbara. It says, to be childless, to be a childless widow was to be among the lowest 
most disadvantages, disadvantaged classes in the ancient world. There was no one to support you, and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. Naomi had no family in Moab and no one else to help her. It was a desperate situation. Desperate. It says both Malone and Chilean died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. This is where I'm going to start getting really excited. If you want to underline, you want to highlight, you want to circle one verse, make it six. Some of you thought we had to get to Boaz to start seeing Jesus. It says this, says that she, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab, so she heard it while she was in Moab, she heard that the Lord had visited his people back in Judah. She heard that the Lord visited his people by giving them bread. God performed a miracle. Naomi wants in on it. She wants to go back. She's been in disobedience. She's been on the outskirts. She's widowed. She sees that God is moving and she wants to go back now. Because God visited his people by giving them bread. He performed a miracle. We're going to come back to that. You're like, he did get excited about that verse. My, he's yelling already. And it says this, Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, Return to her mother's house. Return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. What she's doing is she's praying over them. She's blessing them. She's releasing them and she's hoping that they go on to marry. She's hoping that they go on. She says, look, you're free to go back home where you grew up, go back to your family, go back to your religious practices, go back to hopefully a husband waiting for you. She releases them freely. She loves these girls. She releases them freely. It says, go return each to her mother's house. The Lord grant you, and my, you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They loved Naomi. They had, they must have had an amazing relationship with their mother-in-law. There's a lot of jokes about mothers-in-law that goes around. It's, it's part of our culture. It's just, you know, you got to, you, you know, you marry the mother-in-law. It's just, oh, how far can we get? How often do they come over, right? But mother-in-laws have an incredible, can have an incredible impact on their family. An amazing impact. Naomi did. Naomi did. She lived a life that was clearly abounding in love for these women so much that she wanted the best from them, even if that meant separating from them. She loved them. And when she said, you're free to go, I pray it works out the best for you, they cried. They wept. They felt the same emotions. They were in the same circumstances, these two girls. They felt the same emotion toward their mother-in-law, they were in the same situation, but they acted differently, as we'll see. It says in verse 10, And they said to her, Surely we will remain with you to your people. Said, we'll go with you, make sure. Look, this was not an easy, this is not an easy like walk. It's not like, I'm going to just walk to Newbury Park. I'm going to head back to Judah, right? This was... It could be deadly path, steep, cold, days, nights, walking. They said, we'll go with you till you get there. 
But Naomi said, mom says, and she lays out a case, and it's a compelling case for these daughters to go back. She says this, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb? And that's referring, I won't go into it, that's referring to an Old Testament standard about, about when, when husbands die and brothers take over responsibility. She's referring to that. She's just saying, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. She's pleading with them. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She was feeling the weight of her disobedience at this time. Feeling the weight of her disobedience that she had partaken in. For the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And so they cry out again. No, but they responded differently. They responded differently. It says they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. At this moment, Naomi is feeling the weight of disobedience, but she didn't grow bitter toward God. She knew the answer was drawing closer to God, not running further from him. She didn't accuse God of doing something wrong to her. She acknowledged his control and trusted that he was sovereign over everything. She begs, she pleads with these girls to go back despite the same circumstances, despite feeling the same. They responded differently. Ruth made a decision to pursue and be with God. It says this, Verse 15, and she said, look, your sister-in-law, so she turns to Ruth. Mom turns to Ruth and says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth clings. And this this section is actually woven into um, a lot of vows at weddings. This is a radical bold testimony, proclamation of faith. Orpah has gone. Naomi says, Ruth, go with her. Go back home. And Ruth turns to her mother-in-law and says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever I go, or for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth wants in. Ruth wants to be in covenant with who she has now come to know is the living God. This is a testimony to Naomi. We don't have many details, but Naomi must have lived in a way so bold at times, though stumbling, she must have lived in a way that caused Ruth to say, I want that God. I want the God you serve. It doesn't mean that other people will not see the same life and leave. Some will see that life and say, I still don't want anything to do with it. But Naomi had to have lived. I've got to surmise that she lived in a way that Ruth said, I see you in submission to a real God, a real God, the God. 
I've seen how night and day she must have, and the Bible doesn't say, but I, I can almost guarantee you Naomi prayed over them. She cared for them. She loved them. She spoke of God to them. They, she, she testified of, of what he had done, even in her disobedience, how he continued to care for her. She lived in a way that Ruth wanted her mother-in-law's God to be her God. That's a challenge for us. I go around right now, I pull 20 people that are closest to you that aren't Christians. It doesn't mean that this is a test, this is by the way by which your faith is, is, is judged by any means, but, but would they testify that you're living in a, you, you are clearly living a life that is attractive even to non-believers? Look, I used to be so much about like fighting and apologetics and just beating people with the truth. And there's a place for defense of the faith and all that sort of stuff. But, but man, when you start seeing what actually affects people, which is the peace that you hold in times of turmoil, the comfort that you have in tragedy, the way that you, you live out grace and love and mercy with other people, it puts people eye to eye with Jesus on earth. Why would you do that for a fake God? And when you live in a way that's then attractive, it doesn't mean everyone comes to Christ because you're awesome. That's clearly not the story of the Bible, right? Said no Bible verse ever. If you're awesome, everyone will be saved. No. But are we living that? Are we living that life? That's what I'm looking at. Am I living in that life? You're like, I bet you you interview 20 of my people, they're like, oh, he loves business more than anything. I got to deal with that. Like, I follow you on Facebook, dude. That's all you talk about, right? That's my one friend on Facebook. <laughs> Not friending you? Sounds awful, right? But Naomi lived a life Ruth wanted. She, she's, look, she's, she's experienced God's people now. And she says, that's my God now too. And she makes this bold profession of faith. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. Verse 18, says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Awkward, right? Ever gone on a trip with your mother-in-law? Most of you maybe not be married, but mom just starts, just stops talking to you. That's awkward. They're just, fine, you're going to do this? Can you imagine? Just walking with your mother-in-law. Just imagine you've got one, right? My mother-in-law would never stop talking. But so, <laughs> see, I'm just, I'm so, never mind, it's terrible. Carolyn would laugh the loudest at that joke. But, um, but mom just shuts down. She's like, okay, crazy girl. Okay. And they carry on. They're still headed back. She stopped speaking with her. Verse 19, it says, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, which was just a large village at the time. Any of you from a small town? Is everyone here from California? Around here? Everyone? Anyone else from out of state? Smaller town, quite possibly people know each other, right? I've got, I, I'm not, I've always been from a suburb, suburb of Chicago, suburb of Minneapolis, now suburb of LA. I don't get this entirely, but I have seen it where I've got a, I've got a cousin, super smart. I didn't know he was valedictorian until I went to his graduation. I'm like, Kevin, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> you serious? The dude we used to like flip tractors with? Are you kidding? I'd like drive out to their farm. We do weird stuff right? I kid you not. I flew to North Dakota. Like, Kevin's graduating. I'm like, oh, he made it. That's great. And I'm like, you ready for your speech? I'm like, what speech? They're like, you know he's valedictorian, right? I'm like, Kevin? They're like, Mark, he's going to med school. I'm like, Kevin's not smart. I've hung out with him. <laughs> he's the smartest idiot I know. I'm telling you, right? I'm over there with my three two, thinking I'm crushing it, right? My, my GPA. He's over there like, he didn't, he, He's done with college, like senior year of high school. It's crazy. But he's from, Far- he's, from, he's from Foreman, North Dakota, which is outside of Fargo. So Fargo's small, and then he's to a small town outside of that. So he goes through all the schooling. He goes to med school. He comes out here. He's down at Redlands. He's a specialist. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He gets the hospital from Fargo. They, they, they come out, and they recruit him back. They say, if you come back to our town, we're going to pay all your medical bills in five or all your, your, your medical school bills in five years. So we're going to pay you a normal doctor's salary, which gets you about four billion story house in North Dakota, right? We're going to pay you a normal salary. And in five years, we're going to pay back all your debt. It was, and when he came back, hero. Here, everyone knows Kevin Dahl. 
Everyone knows now Dr. Kevin Dahl. He came back, he went in, they gave him the road, they, they rolled out the red carpet for this guy. Everyone knew him. It's not quite the same homecoming, but in that small town environment, people know. They've been gone for 10 years. They go back to Bethlehem, and it says this. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited. See, we don't know that. It's tough for us out here, me included. It's tough for us to know what that feels like. But this was this tight-knit community, and when they came back, right, mother-in-law not talking, everyone was excited that they were back. Because of them. And the woman, and the women said, Is this Naomi? But pay attention. But she said to them, Everyone was excited. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if like Thousand Oaks threw a party because you came back from school? Can you imagine that? You're here, right? All the way back from Santa Barbara, okay? Because <laughs> you went away to college, right? <laughs> And the whole, just excited. It's a large village. They're just excited, right? This is her chance to be like, everything you saw on Instagram was true. My life is awesome. <laughs> this was her chance. No one knew, right? They weren't texting back then. They had no clue what went down. No clue. She comes back in. She could be a hero if she wants. I'm back. It was awesome. Killed a few bears. It was terrific, right? She said whatever she wanted. Everyone's excited, I have no clue where the bears thing came from. (laughs) But she said this, listen to this. Everyone's excited. Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant, by the way. It means pleasant. She said, do not call me pleasant. She's been gone for 10 years disobedient, by all accounts outside of the will of God. She could come back a hero. She could come back and be a complete fake, complete phony. It's awesome out there. It's fine. Did our thing. Lost a few people, but we're home. And she says this, do not call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara. The name Mara means bitter. And she wasn't saying call me Mara because I'm bitter. She said, call me Mara. It says this, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Life apart from him is bitter. Have you noticed this? I have. I'm the only one, I think, probably. It's just Zach and me. The only ones that know that life outside of the will of God is bitter. Can it be sweet for a season, the Bible says? You betcha. But it will always, always turn out bitter. The world will eat you up and spit you out. And running from God will always equate to a bitter time. A bitter time. Look, I've I've seen the studies. There is not a single part of me anymore that wants to be wealthy. The depression rate among people who are wealthy is off the charts. They've got all the parties, all the boats, Sports players, whoever you want to assume is, is, is the elite, the 1% of the 1%. And they're absolutely miserable. Not all of them. All I'm doing is saying that the, that the pursuit of those things will not ultimately satisfy you. The pursuit of anything, though it can be a good thing, that is primarily about that thing, that pursuit will end bitter when you're turned away from God, running away from him. And she says, it wasn't pleasant. Some of you right now are in that. Some of us right now are in that. We're outside, running. Pleasures, sin, goals, obstacles. We're out there chasing things. God has a call on our life and we're running from it. And we're, and we're realizing, if you haven't already, you will. It's bitter out there. It's bitter when we run from God. And, and Naomi says, don't call me pleasant. It's not pleasant out there. 
Call me bitter. In verse 21, she says, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Isn't that how it goes? I get so full of myself almost every Monday morning. I'm like top of my egg. I'm just on it. I'm just killing it in the business world. It's because no one has showed up to the office yet, right? Hasn't given me an opportunity to be a complete jerk. Full of myself, Monday mornings, just we're going to kill it, we're going to crush it, and it becomes about my glory, and I just get emptied. We pursue the selfish things. We go out full, and the Lord has brought me home empty again. But you need to know that, that God isn't miffed by that. You, you may have heard pastors say it, and it's cliche. I'll say it again because it's true that we've got to be empty in order for him to pour into us. If you're a full vessel, God's like, you're topped off with yourself. And we'll go through life. It doesn't mean that God is out there punishing you and beating you up. But the world will drain you. You will not be able to sustain your trajectory of pride and ego and selfishness and hate and anger and lust. And slowly it'll begin to drain. And as we drain, God says, I can begin to pour in now. But it requires that repentance. It requires coming back to him. Not that, he, not that he's left us, that we've left him. So she went out full. And she's telling this, the whole, the whole village has got to be there. They're like throwing out a party. She's like, it wasn't pleasant. It was bitter without God. We were, as a group, were disobedient. I was disobedient. We've been in famine. Lost my husband. Lost my sons. It's bitter. She says, why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, I want to draw, draw this point again. I've said it before. I said it just a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. I do, not want what you, I, I do not want you to think then, now, that when bad things happen to you, God is punishing you. Have to draw this line. It's, it's the, one of the biggest divides I can draw. Some of you have never heard this before. Some of you have heard me say it 10 times, and I hope you're excited to hear it for the 11th time. God is not punishing you for your sin. So you say, wait a minute. What do you mean? How many of us have done that? I did. I was a kid. Lost my wallet. God, I'll never swear again. Clearly, you made this happen, right? And I, was, I was eight, so I had all of $1.50, no doubt, right? It, I won't swear again. Clearly, you made this happen because I've been swearing a lot, Right? How many of we, we've done that at some point? Something, tra- something tragic happens and you start to reverse engineer it. What have I been doing? I'm outside of the will of God, so he's, he's smacking me around a little bit. The Bible says that he chastens those that he loves. They use the word chasten because it's different from punish. It means discipline for something in the future. When I stepped off, when I stepped off the bus at Marine Corps boot camp, I was immediately being chastened. Had I done anything wrong? No, but I was on my face doing push-ups. Why? I was being trained for something in the future. It had nothing to do with what I'd done. But I need, I need us to understand this. God is not punishing you for your sin. Here's why. He's already punished Jesus as your sin. If you believe he's punishing him, if, if you believe he's punishing you for your sin, what you're saying is that the cross was insufficient. Hear me on that. When you believe God is punishing you for your sin, what you are saying, what you are saying by proxy is that the cross was insufficient. It's true that sin will find you out, right? It's true that sin will find you out. Have you, anyone noticed that? Sin finds its way out, but it doesn't mean God is actively punishing you. Why? Because all of his wrath, even the wrath that you see in the Old Testament, which was active, was satisfied on the cross. So yes, the way God interacted with his people in the Old Testament is different, praise Jesus, than how he interacts with us now. Don't read the Old Testament and say, see, he chastised Naomi, he afflicted her, so now he's afflicting me. No, he already put that on the one who was afflicted. A hundred percent of the wrath was absorbed by Jesus. There's none left for you. We actually think highly of our sin. That ours was so bad that God's like, well, I did kill Jesus, but I'm going to dole out a little extra punishment because yours was really terrible. We actually think very highly of our sin in that regard. But the Old Testament, I know. 
That's pre-cross. That's active wrath. God is not punishing you for your sin. Never translate that Old Testament truth to a new covenant understanding. He's not punishing you the way that he could afflict his people in the Old Testament. She says, and the alm- have, I, have, I, have I explained that? I'll seriously just stop right now informal. Anyone have any questions about that? Here's the one question I got from, from Emily a couple weeks ago when I said the same thing, and I've heard this a few times and I actually didn't have an answer for it. Does anyone know? It comes out of Acts what her question was. What about Ananias and Sapphira? And I was like, he killed someone in the New Testament. My whole thing is shot. I'm retiring. And then you know what I did? I went to Acts. You know what the Bible never says? That God killed him. That's too simple. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And I even dug into it. They're like, so they confessed their sin. They felt the weight of their sin. They dropped dead. It had to have been God. Uh, I would, I, there was actually a case in Connecticut where a pastor confessed adultery. People began screaming and he, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Right there, the weight of his sin, the stress that his body put on his cardio, cardio system dropped him dead. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but we have a modern case of someone confessing sin before God and his people. People get angry and dropping dead. Maybe that's what happened to them. So that, 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 that was the last like hinge. I'm like, I, I don't know how to deal with that text. No. All of it right there. Done. God's not angry with you anymore. All of that wrath was absorbed into Jesus on the cross. That's why in Revelation, it says that the father has judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the son. Why? Because the son now holds all judgment. He holds all the wrath. He's the only one that can pour it back out, which is what happens in Revelation. Jesus himself, it says, comes to tread the winepress and the fury and the wrath of Almighty God. Why? Because God the Father was satisfied on the cross. Jesus will still deal with his enemies, but he's not dealing with you in that manner. This is the gospel of grace. This is the gospel of love. For those who want in this covenant with God, He's satisfied. He's pursuing you. It's not the other way around. But Naomi says, I was afflicted. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabitress, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Check this out. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, which sounds like a craft beer festival, I know. probably get fired for that one but I'm not on the payroll so they can't technically fire me now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest this is a story and by the way when it was written there was no big two that came after this the story is going to continue I hope you stick with us at least for the next three weeks to hear how this story unfolds but it says now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest harvest. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Look back at verse 6. The whole Bible is about what? Every chapter is about what? Every story is about what? Why did she go back to Bethlehem, this house of bread? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't there yet, but I like your tenacity. <laughs> but we all know the obvious too. Where did Jesus come from? Bethlehem, right? But check this out. Verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Here's how you see Jesus in the Old Testament. This is what this chapter points to. This, in God's massive story, is the way that he was using a micro story to bring it to a macro conclusion. This one story, these four chapters, the way that he's pointing forward, we don't have to wait for Boaz to enter the scene before Jesus was being prophesied and shown as a pre-type, as a prefiguration. It says this, she went back, why? For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. 
The Lord visited his people and gave them bread by giving them bread. What on earth does that mean? Apart from the fact that God himself would come and have a conversation like this. And when they found him, these are people all around the sea. When they had found him, that's Jesus on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because I saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. God's been telling this story the whole time. He said it was gonna always arc to this conclusion. It was always going to head to the apex of the whole thing. It was always going to be about one thing, one hero, no matter the story, no matter the time, it was going to be about one thing. Even in chapter one of Ruth, because God the Father had put his seal on him. Then they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent that you believe in Jesus what work can we do how can we be awesome believe in Jesus how can we be right with God believe in Jesus how can we have a peace that surpasses all understanding believe in Jesus how can we be cared for beyond our wildest dreams care for Jesus believe in Jesus love Jesus Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then? Classic humans. That won't show us a trick. That we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? They had the audacity to say. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them. Most assuredly I say to you. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. For the bread of God, I'm going to read that again, is he, for the bread of God is he, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Jesus is the only religious figure in all of human history to ever say, I came from heaven. Do you know that? Buddha, Krishna, L. Ron Hubbard, Muhammad, no one said they're from heaven. Some believe they maybe at one point saw a glimpse of heaven, were visited by someone. Jesus says, I came from heaven and to heaven I will return. Some people say all religions teach the same thing. That's because they haven't studied the Bible. Jesus said, I come from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world and he says elsewhere that I came to give life and life more what? Strict. Life more what? Abundant. Abundant. From heaven to give life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's John 6, 25 through 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. She had heard that God had visited his people by giving them bread. Foreshadowing that God would come to his people and not only give physical bread in the form of miracles as he did, but that he would be bread. When we run in rebellion and disobedience, we run out full, we'll be empty. He says, you chase that, you're gonna come back hungry. Our appetites are insatiable. 
for fame, for money, for power, for career, for friends, for relationships, for lust, for greed, for anger. It's insatiable. It'll never be solved. It'll never be satisfied when we pursue the things of this world. Jesus says, you pursue me, you get me, and you'll never be hungry again. So whether you grew up in the faith, your whole life, whether you're new to this faith, we've all found that life outside the care of God isn't pleasant, it's bitter. And I would implore you tonight, Christians, non-Christians, been in the church your whole life, showed up tonight because you got tricked by a friend. Doesn't matter. We're gonna go hang out with some people in a building somewhere. Let's go. It's live music. I think they have coffee. Oh. Creepy place. They drive you back here next to a lawnmower shop. That's how bad horror movies start. I don't know. And here you are. And whether you've always been running from God, whether you're a Christian and you've recently been running from God, I can tell you this, we're all at some point in the future going to run from God. The call here in Ruth 1 is to cling to the God who cares for you. God the Father, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who has every hair on your head counted, who holds every tear you've ever and will ever cry in a bottle. The Bible says in the beginning God created. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus did all the creating. You want to know why there's a difference between day and night? It's because Jesus said there's going to be day and there's going to be night. You want to know why there's a difference between the ocean and the land? It's because he said, I'm going to separate the seas from the land created everything and yet he knows and holds every tear you've ever shed that big of God is that personal the God of the macro glorified in the tiniest micro the God of the gospel glorified in one chapter of a minor love story Because this is, always has been, always will be his love story. The whole Bible is a love story. And he says, I want you in. You can turn and run. It'll end up bitter and empty. But the God that cared so much about you that he put you together in your mother's womb knows every single hair on your head, has gathered every single tear you've ever shed. That God loves you so much that he wants you a part of his love story. And so I hope you're excited because we have three more chapters as this love story unfolds. But I hope, I hope we're more excited about how this micro love story points to the macro love story. And Jesus came and he said that I would be bread. He said that I am your bread. I don't know if you know this, but it's a common term. Bread gets broken. Bread gets broken and distributed. We take communion every Sunday night here. I'll ask the band to come up. We take communion every Sunday because the Bible says to do so whenever you gather to partake. Not because there's anything magical about the crackers, nothing magical about the juice. But when I talked about God absorbing, Jesus absorbing the wrath of God on the cross... He came to be the bread of life. And the only time in human history that the separation, that that there was incontinuity between the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the only time that fellowship was ever broken in all of eternity was on the cross when God the Father turned away from him and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, fellowship with the Trinity was broken. And in that broken we were then inserted. The only reason we have the ability to be right with God is because Jesus, as the bread of life, was crushed by God. The Bible says, as your my sin. 
And so we take communion in remembrance of the cross, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, not just to cover sin, but to completely take it away. And so we're going to respond now with communion and with worship and with prayer in your own heart. I pray that you respond as well. Wherever you are in your walk, when I say the, the, the areas of your life that you've been disobedient and sinful, I don't have to pull out a list. The Holy Spirit will do that for me in each one of your hearts. The areas that you've been running from God. Tonight, he says, I want you back in part of my love story. And so let's take communion and worship. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just um, pray for exactly that. Just pray for repentant hearts. We thank you for the micro love story that, that has every implication and, and threading and weave toward the, the large love story that is the gospel. The whole Bible is one story, Jesus, and it's about you. And so I pray that we would just simply find rest in the God that cares so much for us that even in our disobedience, we simply turn around to find out that you've always been right there. So I pray for turning hearts areas of our life that we haven't surrendered to you that that we would surrender those to you now myself included that we would turn to the god that cares for us jesus that we would look to you to know that no matter what we pursue in life it will never it will never satisfy us the way that you will and so would you go to work now holy spirit in the hearts of your people those that you love we love you jesus we praise you and it's in your name that we pray amen